0: Tell me about yourself. How did you get to a place where you were going to make a documentary about the embarrassment? Did you are you from Kansas?
1: I am from Kansas. I grew up there. I spent my formative years there. I mean, I was born in the Northeast, and so I, you know, in Connecticut, not not too far from from New York. So I, um, I spent a lot of time there growing up. So I had seen the world outside of flyover country, right? But okay, since right. Like grade school age, I grew up in Kansas.
0: Um, okay. In and All right. Well, yes. you should you should also know that I have family in Wichita and I grew up in Boulder, Colorado, so um, I'm yeah. actually of oh, that stripe, or at least I know those stripes. But um, I love the way in your movie that Kansas is kind of a state of mind.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely a character in the movie, I and mean, we you know we talked a lot about that as we're making. It's not kind of exaggerating it. Um, right. Not just because it is. In a, like an essential part of their story as a band, but because it's a way in from like a filmmaking perspective, like a narrative perspective, it's a way in for out people not familiar with the band, people not from Kansas, because we really wanted this to not just be a love letter to the band. But there had to be something else to it. Uh, right. Something that made it accessible for, uh, for people who are from around here, from people that are, you know, not familiar with post-punk in general. So that was really kind of the biggest, thing that we had to figure out when we were making it. But I guess I should back up and tell you more. Yeah. I should answer your original question. So yeah, so now I was growing up in Wichita In the time I was like in grade school and I had grown up with a in a family of um of movie fans, of Xenophiles, my brothers and I. And um just like you know, in the movie, just like as we often see with like, you know, people that get into this stuff. There's always like an older brother and I'm the middle child, so it was my older yep. brother who was introducing stuff to me and um Around high school, so I was probably like 15 around 2000, 2001, when the New York, you know, rock rebirth thing was happening with, you know, bands like The Strokes, The Walkman, Interpol, Ted Leo and The Pharmacist, that kind of thing. And um it was through that that, you know, I found out about bands like, uh, you know, all the greats like Little Underground and The Clash and the Ramones and all that and um my older brother who had been working at a local art museum um got an you know, he became he started he's like a teenager himself and he started hanging out with all these guys who were like you know much older than him like the film programmer at this museum Um this guy's name is jake and he was part of the band's circle the embarrassment circle back in um, back in the early 80s he was pretty young then too but but um so it was through him that you know they take like we're finding out about all these bands i'm having this like really before and after moment in my life where it's like everything Like, i will never be able to focus on anything else or measure myself in any way other than like you know through through movies and and rock music and stuff and so throw it into this mix of all these great bands is one of their compilation albums i think it was it was probably heyday or retrospective and Mm -hmm. it was like what the hell is it like how is this even possible you know like these guys sound like from the from the sounds like from the same era because of the you know like the, the DIY nature of their recordings, Um right. But also this photo of them in, this photo in the photos in the It's by one of the two photographers that uh, that followed them around. His name was Mike Pfizer. But it's this black and white photo of them hanging out in their practice and performance space, with flat iron. And they had this look to them where they weren't looking goofy. They were looking kind of serious, and they kind of had like a like an eerie feel to me, like. How could this be from here, and how could uh how could we all not know about this so it was that you know it was pretty clear right away that there was something more to this band that had to be figured out and if I ever did uh you know get serious about about filmmaking that um this movie didn't exist then would it would have to be made at some
0: point cool so um I'm just guessing that you didn't you're not of the age where you ever saw them live
1: no, I was born in eighty six so they have, right. they have broken up by the time uh, I came along. But right. I did when I was in college at KU is when my future collaborator, Dan Featherston, had started his early version. Uh, and those interviews are what sparked their 2006 reunion shows. And so Great. I my brother made sure that I came back from Lawrence to Wichita to catch their, uh, their reunion show there. So I was at that show when I was like 19, and, okay. um, I didn't know, but Featherston was there shooting it and we, you know, we ended up recording or, or editing
0: that footage, you know, just last year. So. Okay, good. So you you didn't see them until you were 19. And by the point when you saw them, you knew the repertoire and you knew, you know, when they were going to lean into a certain song, et cetera, you recognized stuff as it started to roll by. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was yeah. waiting
1: for, uh, I was waiting for my favorites, but, uh, I didn't know them nearly as intimately as I as I do
0: now, but uh, but I definitely remember that show. Uh, So when did you know? I mean, it sounds like that maybe was the moment when you figured out, oh, we've got a documentary here. Tell me about meeting your collaborator and what he was doing and how you guys hooked up.
1: Well, it was really that feeling that I that never went away. That just sort of became more and more solidified as I started. You know, they started watching other music documentaries and stuff. I knew that this thing was just waiting and it wasn't in, you know, I started messing around with cameras in my twenties when I lived in New York, I moved to New York for a while, started just messing around there. I, I was living in new Orleans and I finally decided like, all right, it's time to do this thing. And so I called up their manager who were their manager from back in the day, Dan Rouser, who sort of a family friend. And, um, I told him like, someone's, someone's got to do this. and and I think his, I guess it'll be me. And um, he said, well, hold up there because somebody already did try. And that's uh, uh-huh. Dan Featherston. And you might think that that would be sort of disappointing. Like if I think that, like, you know, someone's got to do this and no one else is in a better spot to do it than I am. Some people might think it would be disappointing to find out that somebody had already started on that idea. But really, for me, it actually was sort of reaffirming, like, that this endeavor was worth embarking on because like I knew I knew that this the whole point of this band was that nobody ever n- not many people had heard of them they never got very big and they never broke through a mainstream success but because of that age I was at when I discovered them like a really impressionable age where it feels like everybody sort of knows something that you don't and I gotta figure it out I had this idea right. that like if you walked into any music store like you have locally owned music store Across the country, than if you said the embarrassment that they'd be sort of like, oh, I know who you're talking about, and so I. But at the same time, I knew that that probably wasn't true, and so there was always a suspicion. Like, I know this has to be done, and that it's worth it. That there's something to this band, but I also don't know if like how many people are actually waiting for it. And so when I found out that this you know this guy from New York had already started, it was like it confirmed it. It was like, okay, this is worth it. So I'm going to try to do my own thing for a bit, and I don't want him to think I'm interfering. But it only took about two years of shooting my own interviews and doing my own research, where I was like, "All right, you know, I don't think there's... maybe it'll help him get finished, and maybe it'll help me actually get somewhere here." Because I'm not going to be able to travel around and do all the interviews that he did back in '05 and '06. So I gave him a call in like 2019, and we went from there. Uh
0: huh. So tell me, um, as you're as you're making your way through this story, you're meeting other musicians uh who they've influenced and i'm curious of telling me like what your favorite stories are you know running into someone i don't know from the strokes from any of the bands you've mentioned or haven't mentioned so far like who did you find that were like oh yeah they lit up over the embarrassment well if we
1: you know if we had somebody if we had a fan that from a band at that level they would have shown up in the film but so we didn't uh anybody surprising along the way but as you saw we got Evan Dando in the film and so that was probably right. the uh, that was probably the biggest name and you know I wish I wish Dan were here too I don't want to I don't want to take a steal of steal thunder on that story but because he was the one that interviewed him before a show at Irving Plaza in New York I think it was um I think it was November 2021 but he's got this hilarious story about uh let's just we'll just say that Dando like like lived up to uh his uh, reputation of being like right. very, very, very sweet and charming, uh, but also maybe a little hazy about the details. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but no, he was he was great. He was um, he was a fan from he knew Bill Godfrey from the Embarrassment from uh, his Big Dipper days in the Boston Dipper, area, right. and so right. it was like ten years, like a decade after the Embarrassment's heyday. But uh, he heard them playing on local radio uh, in Boston. And, he right. immediately became a fan. Um, so other than Dan, I mean, Freddie Johnston is like the other. That's uh, right. Freddie Johnston and Grant Hart. You got Grant Hart from Husker Du. Grant Hart was a great, another another coincidence from 2006 interviews from Featherston. He just happened to be playing a show in Lawrence uh, the night that the, re- the embarrassment were doing their uh, reunion huh. show there. So, um, so they met up and, and um, the drummer asked, asked uh, Grant, like, right before the show, he's like, hey, do you want to come introduce us? So when we were editing all this reunions footage last year, you know, he starts he starts the movie. But So I think that interview took place backstage before that show.
0: Uh-huh. Um, well, you should know. So I covered uh, – I'm friendly with a couple Big Dipper fans, and I knew Bill during that Boston era, and I covered Big Dipper for the Phoenix. Um, I was the club columnist for them. Back in the day – um and so that my pathway to the embarrassment was actually meeting bill and hearing from gary wallach oh you have to check out bill's other band <laughs> and stuff like that um so that's my uh that's my uh port of entry
1: yeah i mean bill, um bill's great i mean this stuff wouldn't have happened this movie would never would have happened if bill especially but really all the guys had not been so gracious
0: over the years right They're well like- yeah no and and um you know, I want to talk about that. Um, Bill, let's talk about Bill for a second because obviously he's gone on to do some very interesting things. I follow him on Instagram and he's now like, I mean, I am so impressed with that guy's paintings. I mean, the guy just is, he's killing it on the canvas. I mean, it's kind of unbelievable. And then I was impressed all over again with what a wonderful guitar player he is. I mean, just, really? just I mean, I mean, for so much of it, I did not understand until I saw the movie how much of this band was trio based, right? That the second guitar was added and a lot of the stuff that I'd fallen in love with was really guitar trio. Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, he's um yeah, I noticed that at some point too, like Don Juan, one of their you know, perhaps their best songs. I don't know if I can give that title to any song, but yeah, yeah there's that second guitar in it where it's like that that's when it had crossed over into like their great like studio when everything really came alive but no a lot of it right. was um was just started with bill you know and, and like being pressed on by 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 Brent there's that great line in the movie where he says like uh bill kept telling me play more play more and it's like right. this, that's that's where this this fast pace like the, where the, the frenetic energy comes from right with them. um but uh but no bill's like i mean it's it's the painting it's the it's the guitar playing and uh, you know he was—he's was like it's a little filmmaker too. Like, it's like in like preteen and teenage years. That's one of the moments you asked earlier really about when I thought when I realized that there was something worthy of a doc of a movie that could do the band justice. And it's yeah. when Fetish and I started sharing footage, and I and I saw all of that Super 8 stuff from from when Bill was a teenager and and younger. Yeah.
0: And it's like
1: yeah. holy shit! Like this is this guy's like it's like some really striking visuals. And like this guy's no, very
0: striking. No, it's. It, it, it's it's a fascinating thing to sort of put visuals with the music because the music, I don't know, I, for the longest time, so I never saw them, but, you know, the music, I'm so in love with the music, and, I, of course, I have my own visual ideas about what's going on, and then you see them playing, and, you, and it just is a totally different thing. It's one of the strongest juxtapositions of what you're, you know, getting introduced to a visual of a band long after you have sort of internalized all the sounds. It just I found that very jarring and very interesting. I want to go back and watch the film again because I'm still putting the pieces together in my head.
1: Yeah. I think um I feel like I have a similar reaction. I'm still trying to put all the pieces together. Yeah. But but it's that mystery that sort of sparked the entire thing. It was like trying to trying to figure out how these you know, how these guys could could create that sound. And you know, I think it ends up being a little bit more implicit rather than explicit in the movie because like oh yeah i think that's a lot, a lot of people ask that question like how how could this sound come from the, these guys and yeah. i think that was one of the i think that was one of the biggest challenges like for this thing was like how like how directly do you answer that do we answer that question and you know a lot right. of it comes down to it comes down to Thomas Frank, which was another like you asked to answer your question about when I like, sure. we had something worthy of the band. Sure, but it was that that interview with Thomas Frank was a big turning point because yeah. we needed that person who's not only like, you know, you know, incredibly engaging to listen to and eloquent and a great interview, which he's all those things, but also somebody who put that to put that context in this like you know the post-punk context like a historian yes. explain like what was happening in the world and the country when when this band came along um but it's through his you know his book what's the matter with kansas where he closed sex drive i mean there's a reason he mentions them and it's because that whole book is about red state myth it's about debunking this idea that people in forever country are just like boring and usual and the real you know Country folk of, of like the real Americans, when of course right. it's not true. It's just people, right? right? Like right. certainly there's it's less concentrated. Like there, like the population like its uh, density is much lower. But it's just yes. it's just people. It's a, it's a myth that that talent, would doesn't exist here like it would in other places. The amount right. you know, like it just doesn't have the amount of people, and therefore it doesn't have the infrastructure to support it. And right. so. The, the, the and i think that it becomes evident just by watching these guys like there's no there's no there's no magic that made that made these guys like uh form a band like sure they they, they had access to uh the records and to film and tv and all the other pop culture influences that they you know turned into their songs but, uh, but they're just people and unlike other people like, imagine all the bands around uh, across you know the past few decades that maybe got together a few times, but then fizzled out because the industry wasn't there to support it and didn't seem uh, realistic. But these guys stuck to it. They were like, "No, no, no, we're going to do it anyway because we're as good and we're going to do it right. from Wichita. Right. And right. we're going right. to we're going to set up video, like we're gonna film uh, filmmakers to come here and shoot us so that we can send that out because we know where the industry is going. And so right. all these relics of that time exist, and they really made made a go of it. More than you know, more than most other people would have from this part of the country.
0: Uh, definitely, there's a lot I want to unpack from that. So, number one, what I'm thinking is, um, you know, what I think the movie accomplishes really well is the period, because it's hard for us to imagine. Right now, we're steeped in the web, but you know, it was, it was everything you're saying, but multiplied by a factor that's very hard to to persuade younger listeners. How detached and remote all of that seemed, right? So these yeah. distant regions were distant not just geographically but psychically and also just electronically. Like you had to pay money to call Kansas back in nineteen seventy eight. I mean, there were you know, there were severe limitations placed on the infrastructure of bands coming out of places like that. And so a big piece of their heroic stature comes from they're just being like, we're just going to do it. It doesn't, you know, we're like, we don't care whether people pay attention to us. Right. Which was a big piece of the punk ethic. And that comes through, you know, loud and clear in the movie. I think it's really well done. Yeah. That, that detachment is key.
1: I love that, about having, you have to pay to, to talk to these people. I mean, that, uh, you know, that context is essential for their story. Um, I I mean, it's an obvious challenge to like breaking through the mainstream, success but that isolation i think um is also that dan rouser their um their manager talked a lot about that during our, our interviews yeah. like yeah. it's what led to their originality like right. yeah you're detached and so you're going to limit yourself um you know in terms of like financial success and all those connections but you're also free to do whatever the hell you want to do and you're not influenced by whatever the trends are whatever the fashion is and the other the styles and everything so um I think it's um but I know I love I love what you said about it. But it's hard to it's hard to put into words people today because we're so connected today, despite geography, like the internet connects everybody in a way that um right
0: that really didn't exist just a few decades ago. Right. Well and then there's that documentary that you use, you intercut the interviews and the the live footage with uh, you know, what looks like a mid sixties documentary about, you know, like the Chamber of Commerce Kansas idea of itself um, for contrast. And I want you to talk a little bit about where you found that and why you use that.
1: Yeah. So that, um, yeah. Center city USA. One, it's actually two. One of them is from the early seventies, I think that's okay. center city USA. And the other one is from the mid sixties, I believe. And that's, that's called Wichita now. And um, those have shown up on YouTube and you know, that it's, it's like great mad men era <laughs> version of the like right, right it's just like um i think when we talk to somebody from the from the library the kansas public library it's like somebody had the story was that somebody had just found it on a dusty shelf somewhere and had it transferred onto um onto tape and um and that's what was put onto onto youtube but it's just um you know i love the idea of just of of contrasting that with their sound because that's what they were growing up in. And it really helped build this character of like, of, of the antagonist in the movie, really, which is like the conformity of you know, everything that surrounded them, everything that Brent talks about, you know, never wanting to be a part of, which was just joining and, uh, joining an aircraft company, right? And just doing, right. just doing that. Um, and, um, you know, that exists everywhere anywhere that's not actually in a big city, you, know, you you just go an hour or so north of north of New York or just go into exactly. Pennsylvania or something and and exactly. things start to feel pretty similar but it is
0: that you that didn't make the film that breaks your heart, that it's not in there? You know, when it comes
1: to video footage, like there was certainly a time where Dan and I both wondered, like, is this enough? Like, it's really, right. it's because it didn't seem like enough because, but it turns out that compared to a lot of bands from that era, it's plenty.
0: Like we don't even yeah.
1: use, uh, the, we, we cut it together in ways that has, hasn't been seen before, but uh, we use pretty much every source uh, every show that exists of them. Right. And so there's not like one show that, uh, that we had to cut that, uh, that keeps me up at night, but like there are things that I think exist that we could have gotten that I will that probably never stop thinking about. One of them is like, Um, pretty much everybody involved was really supportive and really gracious and like helping out in any way possible but the guy in Wichita who shot those like that couch interview and the music videos of of I'm in Don Juan" and Don't Choose the Wrong Song um, that it was more difficult getting in touch with him and figuring out if he had any like whatever was on his cutting room floor that's what I think we would have loved to have was like um, outtakes from them being interviewed or outtakes from those yeah. music videos. Um, so that would have been amazing. I mean, the ending, I hate when people, I, I, I don't want to like spoil anything, but then again, like people probably like, I don't know if anything can be spoiled in this movie because, yeah, I don't... the title. <laughs> but like, I'm thinking about the ending when, um, when they close, or when they play that, that great song by perhaps the, uh, the most successful artist of that time um, there there was a moment where we weren't sure if we we're gonna be able to end the movie with that for like you know copyright reasons oh, and it ended up ended up working out and so there was a moment where we had an alternate ending plan, and I think that, that probably would have kept us up and nice yes. for the rest of our lives, but thank God it ended up being okay because it ended up being this the perfect
0: message I think to uh to end the movie with. Well, I, I just want to say I love that ending, and I love how majestic and embracing and huge they sound, and then you get the visual, and you pan to the audience, and there's like 16 people in me. To that me, that's is it. Just... That's, that's the key, right?
1: That's that is I mean, it's it, just it.
0: it's just a phenomenal, phenomenal image, because I think they're playing their hearts out, and it's like... Uh, you know, it's like a rooftop concert for this Kansas band, right? But first of all, I was taken aback to realize, oh, they're playing live. Like, this is a live set. To me, it sounds like so beautifully orchestrated. Not careful, but just it's got great spark to it, and it sounds like beautifully recorded. Although, and then you look at it, it's like, well, that can't be that beautifully recorded. What is happening? Like, who recorded that?
1: Yeah, it's, it's that's just unbelievable. And
0: then, and then it took me a while to recognize the tune. And then once I recognized the tune, I thought, "Oh my god!" So it's a triple layer of like, "Whoa, whoa, this is a real reality distortion field happening here." Hell
1: yeah, that's. I mean, that's exactly it. It's like that always has been one of their best songs, right? And so there's, but it's this thing where it was like. We play up the the originality of that and, like, authentic and original. They write their own stuff, all that. And so for a while I was wondering, like, okay, so but to end it with a cover, is there, you know. With a cover, right. But then uh, then the thing is, yeah, but it's, like, It's like it's wholly there, right? Like, it may be a cover, but it takes you a while to realize it. And it is them at like the height of their powers, like turning something that exists, like taking what was financially successful of that era and doing it in maybe, maybe a better way.
0: And well, right. It's right. It's like, I mean, as a critic, I just have to say I'm passionate about that moment because it's music criticism. (laughs) It's, it's commentary on, Oh, we, we have developed such an original angle on things we can do this and it it sounds completely original right like the reference is gonna it's gonna it's only gonna hit you maybe halfway through i just think that's just this tremendous artistry going on there thank you yeah
1: i mean that's i love to hear that landing um in that in that way and like you said that's exactly right the camera pans out and there's nobody there. Like, this, this, <laughs> yeah. this, this amazing thing is happening, and you've got, like, a kid and a couple of other people dancing. Well, right, and
0: you realize that it's a neighborhood, you know, and it's like these people are intimate, and they they know this band. Like, some of them are just there just for the social end, not even the music end. Like, it's just, just this I, – I, the informality of it is really, really – it's it's astonishing. It's a, it's a real exclamation point. It's a real beautiful way to end.
1: Yeah. There was this moment where, so we're like in, in the, in the middle of editing, probably our most intense, like editing stretch. I've got my parts, Dan's doing his parts. And I'm like, sort of thinking, like, I know that it's both of our, like Dan said that, that that, that song was what he would play. Like when he was younger and he had parties late at night, he'd be like, yeah, at like 2 a.m. He'd break out like, Hey, let me show you something. <laughs> uh, and I like always knew that it was probably one of their most like like one of their most driving song like one of the most fun songs to listen to. So I'm wondering but we hadn't talked about it. And so one day I'm like, are we gonna play are we gonna use that? And it's like I think I think we gotta I think I got I think we got an idea for it. So um so yeah, I think it's um it ended up being the uh, the ideal ending and it would have been it would have been a real bummer to lose it. But it's it the reason it's it's stayed, the reason it's it's okay is because of the, everything that you're describing, how, how they really make it their own. And it becomes a piece of criticism, just like you
0: said. That's the key, is that it's actually saying right. something new. Totally. All right, so um, for the gearheads out there, uh, talk to us about your uh, process, uh, what kinds of format you came across, what kinds of reformatting you had to do, uh what was your sweet spot in terms of like your cutting suite, uh software, etc.? Just just geek out for a couple minutes for us.
1: Yeah, that's one of those, that's one of the things that Dan and I always like, I wonder if someone's gonna ask about that, that editing. Because that's you know, that's where the movie is really made. But um sure. I mean that's one of the things that was really one of the most like surprising and like um and like fortunate things for me was I was out there for a couple of years just sort of doing my own thing in my DSLR and um, trying to come up with, with well, I don't know if I was going to do a short that maybe just focused on the, the house wrecking party or something like that. Uh, but when I realized that if this was ever going to be like the definitive documentary about the band, that I would, have to, I would have to get in touch with the guy who had all this footage already and because he had essentially he hadn't abandoned it he had just sort of it had stalled and he had at one point handed off all this footage to um to an editor in the new york area who's credited his name is rich martins um and he had he had migrated everything into into avid um avid media composer and Mm -hmm. organized everything and so and then he had come back with uh with you know he messed around with the footage a little bit and by the t- around the time i got in touch with dan summer 2019 is when he had gotten the footage back from from rich and so when it came time to share everything with me and really the two of us start working in earnest together and it was all set up and ready to go in avid uh so everything had been had been transferred everything's pretty much it, there there's some hiccups in terms of like um you know making sure that I could view the same sequence that he could view. But that's really sort of the wonder of technol of the digital technology right now. The idea that all this could be done without us ever meeting in the same room. I mean I don't know if that's if that's clear in some of the articles that have already been written, but like Dan and I didn't meet face to face until an hour before the premiere
0: last last huh. fall. <laughs> um, yeah. No that's the modern world though, right? Yeah. I mean that's that's like Frank Sinatra duetting wedding with people <laughs> you know, would that be the yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So um it's a, you know, it's a pandemic project for sure it made the sure. whole thing possible. But right. um but no, so like uh so so as far as a- editing an AVID, that was all that was all ready to go. Uh but as far as like, you know, a lot of their stuff existed only on like Betamax tapes and right. um, but it had been transferred by people that are close to the band. Joel Sanderson's a guy who sort of had documented it and like, or digitized as much as possible he could. Um, uh, so a lot of that was online, but really a lot of it had been done by Jim Rosencutter, who was their sound guy, who's, you know, in one of the early versions of, of the band who shows up a lot in the, in the movie, he had transferred the, um, done the digital transfer of the Flatiron footage years ago. So, um, a lot of that stuff had already been done. I mean I had had found some old Betamax tapes that I tried to transfer but you know ended up not being stored properly. So um but then some of it, you know, we, we tracked down some old VHS footage and get that transferred and use that as some of the B roll. So um so there was
0: some some fun like discoveries there. But uh um, And do you um do you are you a Final Cut Pro person or are you a premiere person? What's your
1: I've worked I've worked in a little bit in everything. I was I'd been doing Premiere before we started on this and um and Dan is definitely a Premiere guy. So a uh-huh. lot of its final touch-ups were done in Premiere, but as far as like the real the real work, the you know, the real editing stuff where where this whole
0: movie was crafted, that was all done in, in Avid Media Composer in Avid. Okay. Um and what's your what is the the takeaway that you hope most people get from the uh from watching this documentary what do you what's your goal for like your key audience experience
1: well you know from the very beginning i was i really didn't have many expectations in terms of like um screening at festivals getting picked up by a distributor or anything like that so all of that has just been like a really a great surprise and but for me i was like you know, if it's just be if this is just a witch thing and it's something that gets shown or aired on the local, you know, PBS station or something, and some somebody who's like, you know, the same age I was and I found out about them watches this and has the same sort of um revelation or feeling of inspiration that, that, that I did when I was that age. Like, you know, when or one of the first time I saw No Direction Home, you know, Scorsese's great the Bob Dylan documentary. Mm-hmm. And um and they're re- they realize that there's this whole, there's this whole scene, there's this whole era of music that they just uh, that seems sort of impossible, but the I never really knew about before. But that was always sort of yeah. my goal. Was like we can just if I could just get this thing made and have it be discovered by by somebody down the line. You know, that to me that would be um, that would be that would be great. But you know, for everything I said earlier about the answer to that question, like how could this come from here? Like right. I think um, I hope that that's a takeaway. Um, yeah, you know, I don't think it's spelled out explicitly in the movie, but um, but it's something that I realized at some point.
0: As 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 oh,
1: mystifying okay. as everything continues to be in some ways, I think um, that idea of you know, Thomas Frank and and sort of dispelling that myth of uh of uh, of that mid state red state myth of fly over country and the lack of talent or inspiration in this part of the country. I, I think that's got to be a takeaway.
0: Totally. I agree with you. Well, I meant to say earlier about Thomas Frank, what I love about the movie is how it gives me new ideas about his work too. Like it will be, for me, it reframes the figure of Thomas Frank and the voice of Thomas Frank. Um, so I love that because that, you know, that book is, Really, uh, you know, just an eye opener. His work is always really eye opening. So I agree with oh, you what a course. great interview that is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So give me your loud. give me your top three uh, favorite uh, rock documentaries. They don't have to be models, but like you know, things that made you feel like No Direction Home.
1: Yeah. Well, so for me, that was uh, I, I, I saw that when I was in
0: college, just a few years
1: after I found out I was about the band, and so. To me, that's always just sort of been like what I look to is the the um, pinnacle for music docs. And then when Rolling Thunder Review came out in, in 2019, that was really what pushed me over the edge to finally call Dan and be like, all right, let's make this happen for sure. Because that thing was like, I mean, I was such a fan of No Direction Home from college age. And I remember thinking like, I can't wait until Scorsese makes something else like this as like a sequel yeah. or whether it's about Dylan or somebody else. And, you know, like he made one on the maps of Rolling Stones, but it was like uh it was like a um uh, sort of like a concert film uh when they were right. older. And then he had the George Harrison one at some point, but I had sort I had gone through my Beatles phase and so I don't even know it didn't really hit the same way. So when Rolling Thunder came out it was like it really felt like a sequel. It was like it hit me really hard and it was like, holy shit, I forgot that I was waiting for this but uh, I've really kind of like kicked my ass and, and put this thing in gear. Um, and so I guess, you know, I would kind of count those as the same, but the Velvet Underground, you know, Todd Haynes' documentary that came oh, out God. last year, we oh. were really just about, we you know, we were in the middle of editing still. So there were, we had a lot of conversations about that. And, um, and I think, cause even though like it's, it's whole, like, when it comes to like fame and influence, it's a Velvet Underground's on a whole different level. Than the embarrassment, but there's, a, there's a trajectory of their story that sort of mirrors this, you know, the embarrassment oh, yeah. in terms of like, we're oh, yeah. all following. They kind of did their couple things and then fizzled out and a lot of people, you know, don't know about them. So right. to, to, to take in that while we were editing, I think was a, was an important thing. Right. Um, but then we also ended up watching the George Harrison one. And we took a, we took a lot from that. Um, Another one that we watched, you know, that I watched while editing was there's this, there's this one on Netflix about Nina Simone called What Happened, Miss Simone. And um, and I think it really nails the kind of opening that I wanted to try to aim for with ours, which oh. is just like this, this sort of like, you just sort of give the subject, like the artist, so you sort of put, put it out there and let it you know, just leave, let the tape roll and let the audience get familiar and really like be what they were about at their height and sort of work backwards from there to We're mm-hmm. kind of stunned at the very beginning. So um but mm-hmm. so those, are, I mean, we watched, we watched a bunch. The big one for Dan was um the Minuteman documentary with J.M. McConnell. Oh that yeah. his original inspiration when he first started. It's what made him want to do this. And that one's like a really down and dirty, like, you know, riding in the side of a car with those right. guys um but it really ends up feeling like the
0: sound of uh
1: of the band and and
0: that's why I just uh, I just just came across Mike Watt playing on in a trio with Jim Keltner have you heard this Uh -uh. oh it's amazing apparently their second record it's a guitar player I could go look it up but if you search for Mike Watt and Jim Keltner Jim Keltner's 80 um but it's a jazz guitarist and they're it's just flaming. And it's like, who would have thought you would put these guys together? And it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. It sounds let's great. It and it's not like what you'd expect Mike Watt to be playing. But apparently the guitarist wrote out his charts for him. Like, it's a it's a very planned out thing. It, it, anyway, interesting. Yes, great. I love hearing the references to all of those uh, documentaries. Now, let's finish. Just tell me the story of what's happened since you made it and you had your Washington... I'm sorry, your Wichita premiere, um, and update us on the story and what the timetable is for 2023.
1: Yeah, so we um, we premiered at Wichita last September, and that was, um, I mean, it was incredible. Day. It was like the Friday night gala event. It was at this big old ornate theater in downtown Wichita, and it was a packed house. And so people were like, you know, cheering at parts that you know we didn't really expect, like when the local music mm-hmm. store pops up or. A guy for you know, the guy that recorded their EP comes on screen, people are cheering. So that was just uh I we were honestly sort of surreal. You could never imagine such a such a good you know, premiere. But the band ended up playing afterwards, their first time in like fifteen years, so it was like Whoa this, this, Yeah, it was just like it was an event. And um and uh, Tell me that you around. rolled
0: tape. Tell me you rolled tape when they played.
1: Oh yeah, Some, there's there's videos online, and and honestly, okay, actually, good. Mike Fizer, they're one of their great photographers. You know, he uh, he recorded and and shot it from the balcony, and there's a lot of like iPhone video too. So okay, oh, um, so it was a big it was a big ask for those guys. Like they were totally into it. They were like ready. But um, you know, for the first show in fifteen years, rather than some sort of small club, they were like in the Orpheum in downtown Wichita. And a lot of space between them and the audience, and the, it took a little bit. But eventually, I think it was during Wellsville, somebody, you know, some fans fr- finally got up and and sort of like broke the ice and went to the front of the stage, and people were dancing up front from there. But um, but they're ready to keep going. And then after that, we did we did a smaller festival in Minneapolis called Sound Unseen last November. Which is great because that's a music, it's a films on music festival. So there's a, there's a music and rock theme for pretty much everything they show there. And, and, you know, Minneapolis is such a great music city. So
0: it was amazing being there. Uh, you know, I love the band and I, I just was so hoping we'd see something worthy of the band. And um, I think I was really, I think my initial impressions were kind of like, you know, it was kind of a shock to see a lot of the, playing it was kind of a shock i have to say but the more it stayed with me um the more i've the more it's really been like it's been a great education it's made me love the band more so hats off well, guys great work that's great to hear i mean that one of something that somebody said during one of the q a's
1: was that it really sounded it really looked like the band sound which you know When you're starting out and you're just sort of throwing ideas around and trying to pitch it to people, that's sort of like a bullshit thing that you say to like try to try try it, kind of ends up being meaningless. Like, I want it to look like they sound, but um, but so to hear that from somebody when it's when it's all said and done and the whole thing like is is reality, um, was uh was a really great compliment. Um, so and I think a lot of that was achieved through. You know the editing style and and, uh, the on-screen lyrics and um, and really just sort of the the video footage. It really captures the era, I think. So,
0: well, I'm just so glad. Yeah, you got that great early concert. What is it? It's like, I mean, they're in a, I think they're in their space, but it just is very close up. It's not, it's not like the best shot stuff, but it's very dramatic, and you're you're, they're they're like hitting a, a different plateau, and it's. And then there's a pan out, and you realize they're in this, like, it's a very small space. It's just like this private party that they're playing.
1: Uh, my memory, yeah,
0: that's... My memory yeah. is that it's early on in the movie, and it's a pretty dominant piece of tape that you you, you keep coming back to because there's a lot of great material there. But, again, it's the contrast of, like, whoa, the sound, and then, like, the context is, like, whoa. They're literally, like, they're doing this for just, like, this private party. I mean, the sound the sound is so authoritative. <laughs> And the yeah. context is so informal, so like small scale, you know, I don't, I want to, tr- I'm trying to, I'm searching for neutral terms, right? It's, it's, uh, it's a small town. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a small scene. It's not a huge scene.
1: Yeah. You know, that's one of the, that's sort of one of the last lines hear is like, you know, the, the fact that they were content instead of moving, forcing themselves to move to a bigger place like New York, they were content to go back and um and sort of anchor this like the secret world of um of like weirdo weirdo new wave shits in the middle of the right. country. Right. Um and um uh, I think that's one of the biggest takeaways is like um you know what do we uh, some, somebody asked once, like, do you think that it was a hindrance or do you think that they yeah, could have been more successful if they had left and it's like, well, I mean financially I think it's of course But if we're talking about, you know, success and and art, like, does every band have to be the Rolling Stones? Is that success to be the Rolling Stones, to be 70 years old and touring? Or is it (laughs) just as successful to put out, like, an EP and one short album that, like, lives on for decades and uh, isn't, uh, like, is wholly original and, uh, you know, authentic to them only, like, I think uh, I think it ends up working in their benefit.
0: So right, well that's that's the punk ethic, right? It's like we're not, we don't want, we're serious. When we say we don't want to participate in any mainstream values. That's part of it. We're, we're we're hitching our wagon to like, yeah, that means mainstream success is like incidental or, I mean, you know, Nirvana winds up, you know, Nirvana they really struggled with that. Yeah,
1: that's that's something that Thomas Frank loved talking about, was how the entire grunge movement, he wrote a lot about that. He's got this great article that was in Harper's in the 90s where he was out on the road with these bands and talks about how that whole movement was like a commercial imitation
0: of the actual post-funk post movement that had happened. Dan, thank you so much. This has been so great. Great. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. Okay, see ya.